0: Hello, I'm Tom Melville. Welcome to Voice of Real Australia. Each episode, we bring you people, places and perspectives from beyond the big cities. This week, producer Laura Corrigan takes us aboard the Aurora Australis, the retired Antarctic icebreaker. It was built at Carrington Slipways, just north of Newcastle, and is the only Australian-made icebreaker. During its 30 years of service, it's made hundreds of voyages, taking thousands of Australians to Antarctica and the Southern Ocean, Now, though, the ship is moored in Hobart with an uncertain future.
1: I can remember the moment that I saw the Aurora Australis. When you're in Antarctica during the middle of the summer, the sun never really sets. It kind of dips below the horizon but then comes up. So there was this kind of orange hue cast all along this huge field of ice and then right in the middle was this big red beacon of hope, that was the Aurora Australis.
2: When Taylor Fuller was 19, he found himself in the middle of an international rescue mission in Antarctica. He was aboard the Academic Shikowski, a private Russian vessel conducting marine science research. On Christmas morning 2013, the ship and its 74 passengers and crew became stuck in the ice off the coast of Antarctica. The Australian icebreaker Aurora Australis was one of the ships that came to their rescue. Leanne Milhouse is an operations and shipping officer for the Australian Antarctic Division. She was on the Aurora when the distress signal came in.
3: We were in the middle of doing a Casey resupply when the Australian Maritime Service called on the Aurora Australis along with a number of other countries' icebreakers to go and assist the academic Schakowsky that had gotten stuck in the ice. So we packed up and headed off.
2: The Chinese icebreaker Shui Long and French vessel L'Astrolabe Lab had also responded to the stuck ship. The Shui Long used its helicopters to ferry passengers from the Schakowsky to the Aurora. Taylor Fuller again.
1: We marked up a helipad using spare milo tins that we had <laughs> in the hull and tamped down the ground around the ship so that the helicopters could land on it without... Their landing gear seeping too far into the snow and ice where they were landing next to our ship.
2: Taylor says he felt at home aboard the Aurora.
1: People were very, very nervous about what could have happened to us, but it was a really, really lovely trip home and all of the crew and the captain of the ship made us feel really welcome.
2: Leanne Milhouse says that's just the way it is in Antarctica. When someone needs help, no matter what station, no matter what nation, you lend a hand.
3: It's one of the unique things, I think, about going to Antarctica. Everybody actually wants everyone to succeed, so they'll do their best to help. And there's no real elitism. So you might have some people that are higher levels In their normal world but they will pitch in and go and help in the galley for example. We've got a task let's get in and do it and do it safely and efficiently as we possibly
4: can.
2: Sarah Laverick is a marine biologist and wrote a book about the aurora australis She says people really get to know each other aboard the icebreaker.
4: You might think that icebergs start blending together or something like that, but they're always unique. There's always unique experiences on board and you're sharing these experiences in a very isolated environment with not that many people. So you do become quite close. It's almost like family in a way. Like I've got crew members much older than me that I consider really good friends that I met on my voyages. And I don't know if I would say that if we'd just been working in an office environment.
2: Sarah actually met her husband on the Aurora. He was an officer on the ship during her second voyage. They first met when he was instructing her team on how to put on an immersion suit in case of an emergency.
4: And I was paired with another girl, Beck, who's really tiny, and all these immersion suits are just huge, like big kind of wetsuits or dry suits. And Andrew came up and he had this really cheeky grin and he said, oh, I think you and Beck could jump in there and still have room to spare. And he flashed this really cheeky kind of smile. And I thought, oh, that guy's really good looking, but gee, know, knows it. <laughs> and I thought he was a bit, I guess, arrogant. So my first impression of Andrew
2: wasn't a good one. But spending that much time together can put strain on relationships. Krill specialist, Stephen Nichol, worked for the Antarctic Division as a scientist and program leader for 24 years. He appreciated the need for passengers to let off some steam. Something that
5: happens about two-thirds of the way through the voyage where everybody gets really tired and ratty. And we were in the middle of a storm there, and it was snowing like anything, and snow built up on the helideck. I was up on the bridge with the captain, and you could look in the CCTV cameras, and you could see the snow building up there, and then gradually people would come out onto the helideck in a force eight gale, this is. And they started having a snowball fight. The captain then looked at me and he said, you know what you've got to do? I said, what? He says, you have to go down there and you have to let them beat you up down there. So I put on my outdoor gear, I went down and everybody took out their frustrations of me. All we went back to work, I'm much relieved.
2: In their downtime, crew and passengers would play board games, watch movies, write journals and emails, play instruments, birdwatch and whale watch, maybe take up photography, and before the vessel became dry, drink at the onboard bar. And just like Aussies on the mainland, they'd love to have a barbecue. Leanne Millhouse again.
3: It's about minus eight, but you're having a barbecue, eating a steak sandwich, and you're just watching icebergs go past, and it's quite surreal. It can really be uplifting. The mood can change quite a bit. So whether it's a barbecue or a trivia night or some sort of social occasion just really lifts the mood of everyone. And you can trundle on for a few more days.
2: Jerry O'Doherty has sailed more than 50 voyages on the Aurora Australis. He's the ship's master. One of his fondest memories of the icebreaker was ringing in the new millennium with his shipmates.
6: We were parked up in a place called the Amory Ice Shelf We were parked up in the sea ice there. We put a ladder over the side and set up a bar down there and we had music and dancing and some penguins joined us and we watched the sun at midnight just sort of kiss the horizon. I can say that the sun never set on the 20th century for me.
2: The Aurora Australis is affectionately known as Orange Ruffy because, well, it's orange and the ride to Antarctica is notoriously bumpy. Melanie Van Twist has travelled on the ship as a medical doctor.
7: The most remarkable thing was watching the curtains over my little window. They would sway out into the cabin and then sway back flat against the wall. And as I watched them, I was trying to get it into my head that the curtains were actually hanging still and the wall was moving. To this day, I still can't quite wrap my brain around that. <laughs>
2: The Aurora Stralis is about 95 metres long and 20 metres wide. It's painted a deep orange colour. It has a flat bottom and it's is toward the back. It can hit a maximum speed of 16 knots. It's the only icebreaker made in Australia. Jerry O'Doherty first saw the Aurora when it was being built at Carrington Slipways near Newcastle in the Hunter region of New South Wales. Its strange orange hull was not like anything he'd ever seen before. He was a professional fisherman at the time.
6: After the ship was built, I let's say I had an unguided and unauthorised tour of the ship, I'll leave the details out, but I got to meet some of the uh, people that were fitting the, the ship out and some of the crew, and I asked them what I had to do to get a job on a boat like that. So my first mistake was calling it a boat because they all remind me it was a ship. And when I got down to the trawl deck, I met uh, one of the boatswain, and when I asked him that question, he said, well, you've got to have a job on a merchant ship. And I sort of realised straight away that it was going to take some time and effort to to get away to sea. But as things turned out, nearly 10 years later, I did get away to sea in the Merchant Marine. And and I did eventually get a job on the Aurora Australis. And I've been here ever since.
2: Don Laverick's family ran the Carrington Slipways shipyard. Incidentally, Don is the father of Andrew Laverick. The handsome officer Sarah fell for aboard the icebreaker. Decades ago, Don travelled to Helsinki in Finland and visited the shipyard of Wartsila, the company that designed the Aurora Australis.
8: I can recall a gentleman showing me around their shipyard in January where the snow had been shoveled off the paths and was about six feet high. And this guy says to me... A lovely day today. I said, mate, I can't feel my fingers or my ears or my nose, and uh, it's minus four, and you say it's a nice day. He said, Oh, he should be here when it gets down to minus 40. I said, What? How the hell do you build ships under those conditions? So we let the welders knock off when it gets to minus 20. Oh, very generous. <laughs> Unbelievable.
2: Don says from the beginning, the Aurora was a challenge. The multi-purpose ship had to comply with regulations for aircraft carriers, fuel tankers, cargo ships, fishing boats and passenger ships.
8: Well, the, the material was much heavier than anything we'd done before. I mean, the bottom plating was about twice as thick as a normal cargo ship to survive the ice. spending the um, plates for the shape of the ship, we had to buy a, a heavier set of rollers to roll the shapes. Every bit of it was a challenge. The hydraulic system on it was bigger than anything we'd ever tackled before because of the winches for uh, trawling.
2: Don's eldest son, Bruce, was working on the ship in Dry Dock during the Newcastle earthquake of 1989.
8: He thought the ship had fallen off the blocks in the Dry Dock in When he came up uh, onto the deck and looked around, the whole of the city with clouds of dust, there was fires at BHP, and the whole city was a dreadful mess. There were dust flying everywhere, and, and it was still trembling.
2: The Aurora Australis launched in 1989 and would become Australia's premier Antarctic exploration vessel for more than 30 years. During its time at sea, the ship took its fair share of knocks. Barbara Vinica is a seabird ecologist. She was on board the Aurora in 1998 when it suffered an engine room fire. That night, Barbara had been on deck watching people taking ice measurements, and she went to bed around midnight, escaping the minus 20-degree chill.
9: Two and a half hours later, one hears the dulcet tones of our captain's voice, and I thought, can't be true, I mean, surely. But he kept repeating that this was not a drill we had to leave. I remember my cabin mate saying come on Bob everybody else is running down the corridors I think we really have to go. It is really hard to comprehend that this is actually not a dream and it is really happening we are miles from absolutely everywhere it is in the middle of winter in Antarctica and and your ship is on fire and as soon as we got outside you could smell something we hadn't smelled the day
2: before. All the expeditioners had been mustered out onto the heli deck in sub zero temperatures.
9: I was far too busy trying to figure out what was going on, too busy to be afraid. I certainly felt extremely wide awake. It is amazing. It, it seems that the thought processes are speeding up. So much is going through your mind. I realized actually that some of my colleagues had been a little bit underprepared in that they literally just. Ran out of their cabins and didn't have much warm gear with them. I knew it was going to be cold out there, so I made sure that I grabbed a few extra pairs of gloves and even some socks. I just shoved them into my pocket. Then, when I saw my colleagues with bare feet, of course, I handed them spare socks. When the lifeboats were lowered, just in case that we had to evacuate the ship, that's when I thought, no way, no way
2: am I going to go into any of those little tubs. I'd rather go down with the ship. The fire was put out and nobody was injured, but the ship did lose power. And as the days progressed, you sort of
9: realized that, hmm, okay, everything is down. We didn't have any water, the toilets didn't work. That was disgusting. I mean, not having a shower is, is one thing, but not being able to use the toilets, that
2: was pretty harsh. But again, the famous Antarctic camaraderie kicked in.
9: Because it was a marine science voice, all sorts of people had brought along all sorts of gear. My team had a couple of high-pressure gas cookers. When the chefs and the galley staff heard about that, they said, Oh, great, and started to cook vast quantities of soup and coffee. And the reason why they could do that is our marine biologist colleagues had several hundred litres of distilled water. Thankfully, that hadn't frozen. And to this day, I'm amazed that the crew actually managed to get into this burnt out cavern and fix things out of whatever little bits and pieces they found and got her going again.
2: Shipmaster Jerry O'Doherty has his own horror stories from his time aboard the Aurora Australis.
6: The worst experience I had was a toilet that malfunctioned in cabin D13, and I won't describe the details of that, but certainly the worst thing that's happened to the ship itself was the ship breaking its moorings at Mawson Harbour in 2016, and then drifted onto the rocks. That was in a blizzard. Yeah, that was probably one of the most heart-stopping moments First of all, we couldn't really see what was going on outside because of the blizzard. We did know that we were up against the rocks, but we didn't know how much damage the ship had sustained as a result of that. It wasn't exactly panic stations, but it was like, we've got a serious situation on our hands. Let's do everything we can to make sure everybody is as safe as possible.
2: Jerry says one of the biggest challenges of the job is telling the expeditioners when they have to abandon the voyage and go home.
6: So we do our best to try and get those people and those groups to those locations, and sometimes it's just not physically possible to do it. And when you have to deliver the bad news to say, I'm sorry, but your project's just about to go down the gurgler, and to experience the disappointment that sort of news brings, that's really tough. In fact, I think that's one of the hardest parts of the job.
2: During its service for the Australian Antarctic Division, the Aurora Australis conducted 150 research and supply voyages involving 14,000 expeditioners. The ship propelled Australia's Antarctic program, making strides in understanding the Southern Ocean. Advancements were made possible in oceanography, climate science, marine research, glaciology and conservation, including the management of krill fisheries. It helped Australia to make its mark in Antarctica. Melanie Van Twist again.
7: There's a point called the Antarctic Convergence and it is really like sailing into a refrigerator. The temperature just plummets over a matter of hours and that's when you know that you've really got there. Bits of ice and icebergs start to appear. And the sense of excitement and trepidation to a certain extent, it's a dangerous place. You become very aware of how the ship is our refuge and our haven in that hostile climate.
2: Antarctica is often described as monochrome, endless fields of grey and white ice and snow, But Sarah Laverick says there's actually a lot of colour.
4: Something that I used to love, which was a bit surprising to me, was seeing seals on ice floes and things. If they've been eating krill, they'd leave really vivid red streaks of poo on the ice. It almost looks like blood. The leopard seals, they mouth at the ship because they're not quite sure what it is. So they open their mouths um, and that's like them saying, don't come near my flow." And as you go past them, like say if you're 50 metres off or 100 metres off, as their flow goes by... of pink against this sort of white and blue landscape is really obvious and surprising. I used to love seeing it, and I don't know why.
2: Stephen Nichol recalls seeing a particular colour in Antarctica, the elusive green flash of the sun.
5: As the sun just just goes down beyond the horizon, there's very occasionally, if the atmospheric conditions arrive, there is sort of this absolutely intense flash of bright green light that just appears above the sun. In fact, the very first time I saw it, we were uh, at the start of a long voyage and one of my colleagues was there ready to photograph it and everything. And so we saw it and he was just stoked that he knew he'd taken a photograph, but it turned out he was using black and white film.
2: <laughs> Antarctica is the aurora's natural habitat. It's designed to break ice 1.2 metres thick. Jerry O'Doherty says the golden rule of seafaring is don't hit anything. But that's what the Aurora was built for.
6: Just a thunderous crack, like a continuous banging noise with one crack after the other. It's quite exciting, and we often get people up on the bow just to experience that sort of shaking and, and thunder that occurs when we're doing it. And sometimes the ship can just continually push through ice and continually break ice under the bow and push it aside and it goes underneath the the ice sheets beside the ship as well as sometimes going underneath the hull, sometimes passing through the propeller area and when it goes through the propeller that adds a whole new dimension of shaking and rattling that keeps everybody awake. And sometimes the ice is heavy enough or strong enough that it actually stops the ship in its tracks. And when that happens, we have to basically reverse the ship for a couple of ship lengths, and then basically go flat out, straight back into the same spot and have another go. And sometimes that backing and ramming, you might have to do that for days in order to get to where you need to go.
2: Barbara Vinneker was one of those passengers who liked to get up on deck to watch. She doesn't actually go
9: through like a hot knife through butter. The bowel rides onto the ice and the weight of the ship cracks the ice. You feel the ship's bow rising and then she slowly comes down and you suddenly see these spider-like veins running through the ice and you know she has cracked the ice. She goes into reverse again, takes a good run up and off she goes and breaks some more ice.
2: The Aurora has now been decommissioned. The ship's future is unclear. Melanie Van Twest started the Aurora Australis Foundation which led a push to see the ship given heritage status and turned into an Antarctic museum and function space.
7: We're one of the very few active Antarctic nations that does not have a museum to record the history of its work in Antarctica. And that is an incredible oversight and a great shame. There's no point having a history if we don't, Communicate that to people. So, although most Australians would know that Australia maintains an Antarctic program and we have a presence in Antarctica, I would say very few would be able to tell you how many stations we have or the name of one of those stations or will know that we're on Antarctica 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and have been since
2: 1948. But the ship's owner, P.O. Maritime Logistics, has been granted an export permit needed to sell the ship overseas. They say they've been approached by a number of interested parties from around the world. Leanne Milhouse would love to see the ship continue to operate.
3: It would be nice if she was still an operational working vessel. She would need someone to buy her for that particular task. So the upshot is it would be great if she could still continue to work in whatever capacity, you know, whether it's another country or it's another company. She's still a very good ship.
2: The Aurora Australis is being replaced by the Noyina, built in Romania. The new icebreaker and supply vessel is almost ready to go, but its final testing phases have been delayed by the COVID pandemic. It's expected to arrive in Hobart in 2021. Gerry O'Doherty is keen to take up a role on the Noyina.
6: Certainly the excitement of the technology that it will have. It's got everything that possibly opens and shuts and goes around in circles. It has an incredible capability.
2: What is clear is that the Aurora Australis meant a lot to a lot of people. A second home, an adventure, a scientific breakthrough, a lifesaver, a matchmaker and so much more.
0: That story there from Lara Corrigan. If you're around Hobart, you might have seen the Aurora Australis, growing barnacles at Prince's Wharf. You can't miss it. That striking orange hull really does stand out. And if you want to know more about the historic ship, look out for Sarah Laverick's book, Through Ice and Fire. That's it, though, for this week's episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please share it with friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Everyone has a story to tell. If you'd like to share yours, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash Australia voice of real australia is recorded in the studios of the newcastle herald it's produced by lara corrigan and me your host tom melville our editors are gail tomlinson and chad watson special thanks this week go to ian kirkwood and the australian antarctic division this is an acm podcast